I received a text this morning from a, a friend, a pastor, who said that he preached the worst sermon of his life, that if Judas could have heard it, Judas would have been so happy. So I am, uh, my, my aspiration this morning is to show him how bad it could have been, just to redeem him from feeling that he preached the worst sermon. No, it is, it's, it's a tough time for, for pastors and, and for everybody, I think. And I, I think it's a tough time because with everything else that's going on, this season, this, this pandemic, and the election cycle, adding the, the stress of all of that to what we're already dealing with is, is unique. I think we'll look back on this time in our lives, all of us will, as an, an incredibly hard season because of the, the constant pressure from all sides on, on our lives, in addition to everything else that life has thrown at us. And so pastors have this task, like parents, like coaches, like, like supervisors, like politicians, they have this task of, of trying to find the right word to say to their people in a, in a given moment. And it's, it's difficult, especially when you yourself aren't sure what you need to hear, much less what you need to say. And this Christmas season should be a time of reassurance and comfort and encouragement. But as I talk to more and more of my friends and I talk to more and more of my family, I realize how this year just, it feels hard to rise up to the, to the hope of the moment. How, how to step into the joy that Christmas promises us, given everything else that's happening. But I, but I think that's exactly what we are called to do, and that we should, we should respond to this moment, acknowledging that it's difficult, acknowledging that we don't quite know what to say or even what we need to hear, but acknowledging that in spite of it all, God is faithful, and that he is with us in this moment, that nothing is impossible for God, not even finding joy in this, in this moment. So I, I want to share from that place and try to speak a word of encouragement and reassurance, a word that can, can steady us for this Christmas season. And I want to draw a contrast, at least at first, between Mary, whom we just heard about in the gospel, and David, who we hear about in the Old Testament reading for the day. And so let me, let me read that for you, and then we will jump in. 2 Samuel 7, which is an account of David offering to build God a house. And the, the lectionary this week gives us this contrast between King David and the lowly virgin Mary. Now, when the king was settled in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind to do, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this land. But I have been moving about in this land in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of them 
with any of the leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more as before. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your, from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish your kingdom. So we have here in these stories an incredible contrast between David and Mary, at least given where they are in their lives. David is now a king, a great king, a king who's triumphed over all of his enemies All of his enemies have been cut off. And he begins to reflect on the fact that God lives in a tent. Think about the contrast between that and what we have with Mary, who is just a young girl, a virgin, not yet married, and has nothing claimed about her. This this is striking. If you read the Gospel of Luke, when Luke introduces a character, he, in every case but Mary, he, inter- he introduces that character by describing their holiness, by describing their righteousness. But Wally says of Mary is, she's a virgin in Nazareth. He, he gives no characterization of her. And so we, we have this contrast between David and Mary, between the king and this lowly virgin. Young not yet developed enough even to be described in her personal character. And yet, what we know is the story of Christmas is that through that virgin, God fulfills everything that's promised to David and more. Everything that God promises to David and everything that God had promised to Abraham and everything that God had always purposed to do is fulfilled in the life of this lowly virgin, this servant girl, this milkmaid as the tradition says. She's, she's nobody, and yet precisely in her life, God breaks in. So I, I want to talk for just a moment in the, in the contrast there about what God wants for Christmas. I'm a parent, of course, and so roughly 70% of my year has been, sent, has been spent filling out Christmas lists for my kids, especially my youngest, Emery. And 95% of the memory on my phone is taken up with pictures he has taken of what he wants me to remember to get him for Christmas, right? And I've kept them all, Emory. They're all still in my phone. So I, 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 this is part of the joy, right, of being a parent. You know, it's a couple of days from now we'll celebrate Christmas, and a couple of days after that, Emory or Clive will say, how long until Christmas, right? It's that kind of constant looking forward to it. And you're, you're making lists about what you want. And, that, and that's part of, part of the joy, right, of, of the season is, is hearing what people want for Christmas and, and finding ways to give it to them, right? Giving the gifts that you know are going to bring joy to them. And maybe also getting gifts that you want yourself. 
But I, th- I think it's important, as, as odd as it may seem, to step back every year and ask ourselves, what does God want for Christmas? Now, of course, right away we have to say that in some ways that's, that's a misleading question because God doesn't want anything. God has no need. God does not lack anything. And th- this is critical to everything else that we believe. If God were needy, then that would mean that our relationship to him were unst- was unstable. If God, the all-powerful one, creates us because he needs us, then that means he can be manipulated, that he can be coerced, that we can find out what he needs and we can use that need against him. And so it, it would destabilize everything about our life if it were true that God were needy. But of, of course, God isn't needy. He doesn't create because he needs relationship. He doesn't call us because he needs our love or our devotion. He doesn't desire for us what he desires for himself secretly. He has no ulterior motives. God doesn't have any kind of hidden agenda with us. God creates out of sheer generosity. He is, as my favorite theologian says, God in eternity says to God, we're having such a great time. We really should let others in on this. And that's why anything exists at all. That God's life is nothing but joy given between the Father, the Son, through the Spirit. And so from that overflow of joy, we exist. And God calls us into that joy. And salvation is just the way that we name how we are brought into the joy God purposes for us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That at Christmas, God's desire for us, born not of need, but of sheer sheer generosity, comes to us in the life of the most unlikely person. And we're included in it. We're brought up into the life that God has with God, the joy that God shares with God. So that we stand in the place of the Son. Now we do this every time we gather together, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we start that prayer with, Our Father, who art in heaven. And when we say our Father, we're not only saying yours and mine and every other Christian who prays this prayer, but we're saying it with the Son who calls his Father, Father. When we say our Father, what we're doing is we're joining Jesus in his address to the Father. And so we are included in the life God has with God, the joy God has with God, the gift that God gives to God. And and that is critical to everything else that we believe. God has no need, but out of sheer generosity, he creates, he redeems, he brings us to fulfillment in his own life. And yet still, we need to ask, what might God want for us? And how might we yield to what God is asking of us? So that what God wants for us can come to pass. So that what God desires for us, again, not from need, but from sheer grace, what might we do in response? The theme for this Advent season is hope and responsibility. What, what is our responsibility to this God who's pouring himself out generously? David, I think, gives us an example of what not to do. This is one of the things I love about Scripture, is that it pulls no punches with its characters. It's, it's unfortunate that a lot of us have been brought up in churches that I think we try to protect the image of God and we try to protect the image of God's people. So we don't tell the full story. We're, we're afraid to let the humanity of these characters in Scripture or the humanity of our own lives be seen by others. But Scripture is unafraid. Scripture is unafraid to tell the whole truth, 
the ugly truth, as well as the lovely truth about these characters. And David, it turns out, is exhibit A for Scripture's willingness to say the whole truth about someone. In many of our churches, David is idealized as the man after God's own heart. But if you actually read the texts, you actually read the story of David's life, it's, it's deeply tragic, incredibly painful. David is a man who does love God passionately, and yet he's also a man who's at the mercy of his passions. He is carried away in his adoration for God, but he also gets carried away in his hatred for his enemies. And he gets carried away in his lust for women. And he gets carried away in his lust for revenge. In fact, when David is dying, when David is dying, the words in his mouth are contradictory. He's, he's on his deathbed, he's dying, he's speaking to his son Solomon. There's a a coup taking place in the kingdom as David is dying. And he says to his son, remember to fear God and keep his commandments. And also, here are all the people who wronged me. And he just lists them off. Make sure that as soon as I'm dead, they die. I vowed not to avenge myself, but you didn't take that vow. So revenge me, avenge me when I've died. And he he dies with that blessing and cursing both in his mouth. And here in this story, David has, again, conquered all of his enemies. He's living in security, and he notices the tent of God and says, hmm, that doesn't seem right, and calls the prophet to him and says, Nathan, look, look at God, look at my house, look at God's house. And Nathan says, do whatever is in your heart to do. Do what is ever in, whatever is in your heart to do. And, and the first contrast that I want to show you is the contrast between the thoughts that come into our minds and the word of God that comes into our hearts. I think one of the things that, that ends up destroying our lives or at least wounding us and others in so many ways is that we're incapable of distinguishing the thoughts that come into our heads from the words of God that come into our hearts. David has an idea. I live in a wonderful house made of cedar. God lives in a shabby tent. I really should do something about that. But that's not a word from God in his heart. That is an idea born of his own ambitions. And I think what's striking about this is that at the beginning of David's story, David was much like Mary is at the beginning of her story. He's a nobody, chosen precisely because no one else thinks about him. But by this time in his life, he is somebody by definition. He's ruling over everyone. He is favored and blessed and empowered. He's conquered his enemies. He's living in security. He has it all. And in that place, out of his sense of accomplishment, comes this idea about what God would really want. But that idea is not true to who God is. And this this is critical for us to understand. Many of the ideas that come into our heads about what God would want are born of our own misunderstandings about God that have come to us because of the ways we've come to value life. We care about success, but God doesn't. We care about prosperity, but we often confuse prosperity with blessing. This is why many times, and Bishop Ed, those of you who are watching online, Bishop Ed is there to correct all of this. For those of you who are in the room, Father Brent will have to stand up and intervene, or Father Paul. But this is one of the things that I think should grieve us. How many times 
Have I been or you've been on short-term mission trips to Mexico or Haiti, somewhere in South America or Africa, and come back to the States, and then our testimony is, we're so blessed, when what we really mean is, we have high-speed internet and toilet paper. Now listen, I love high-speed internet, even more than toilet paper, but, but that's not blessing. That's not blessing. We should be thankful for every good thing in our life, but we can never confuse prosperity for God's blessing on our life. And David has done that. He sees his glorious house of cedar. He sees that he's defeated all of his enemies and he doesn't see the blood on his hands. And this is the second contrast. David cannot build this house for God because his hands are bloody. But Mary, the virgin, sheds no blood. That's at the heart of what Christians confess when we confess the virgin birth, that there's no blood, there's no violence in what God brings about in her life. And so I think this season, if we're going to think and respond to what God wants, we have to understand the difference between an idea that pops into our heads because of the ways we've come to see the world and the word of God birthed in our hearts because of what God desires for the world. David is a hero, and many of us have been raised in heroic Christianity, a Christianity that says you have to grit your teeth and clench your fists and do your best for God. I remember when I was a kid, my parents had this practice where whenever we had a visiting speaker, they would send me to the visiting speaker and have, that speaker, have those speakers write something in my Bible, sign it and write a, a note to me. And more than one of those speakers wrote some version of this, believe great things from God, attempt great things for God. Right? That's, that's heroic Christianity. Believe God can do the impossible and then step out in faith and do it yourself. Except Christianity is not heroic At the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of the Christmas story, is not the story of a hero, but the story of a virgin who's so young and undeveloped that Luke can't even describe her character. At the story, the heart of our story, at the heart of the Christmas story, is God coming as a baby, a nursing, diaper-spoiling, crying baby. We don't celebrate through the Christian year. We don't celebrate our heroes. We celebrate the martyrs. And this is what David, for a moment, forgets. The God who fell in love with David and the David God fell in love with are united in their smallness, their weakness, their nobodiness. God falls for David when David is a nobody in the wilderness. But when David becomes a somebody in the palace, he forgets that God wants the David who's in the wilderness, who's a nobody. And Mary is just too young and too naive to know that she's supposed to be heroic for God. There's an old idea in heroic Christianity that God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. That's nonsense and worse than nonsense. God creates, we're not there to pray for it. Mary wasn't praying, oh God, Be born in me. She's just going about her normal life, neglected, unknown, naive, and suddenly the angel of the Lord is there. 
The other thing I want to point to, and I'm almost done, is the ways in which God responds to David's misunderstanding. So David imagines, I'll build God a house. And the prophet Nathan, as many of us are liable to do, when someone is powerful, he just defers to him. Do whatever's in your heart to do. But notice what happens next. Nathan goes on his way, and the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. Go back and tell David, who are you to build me a house? One of the things that's wonderful about Scripture is that it never tells us the tone of these words. So you could hear this as a kind of mocking. Who are you, David, to build me a house? But I hear it, at least today, I hear it as a kind of good-natured ribbing, the kind of joke you have with someone you love, like God saying, hey, David, did you forget? Who, Who are you to build me a house again? Think about it, David, seriously. I've been with Israel for a long time. I've never asked for this. But then God doesn't stop with that kind of good-natured rebuke. He doesn't stop with that, with that joke that puts David in his place. He says, I'm going to build you a house. And this is one of the things I love about God, is that even his corrections turn out to be nurturing goodness in us. Even his discipline is, in fact, meant to bring about our joy. And so he he puts David in his place and then reminds him, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then he does fulfill that in Mary, who becomes the house of God. This is something that the Christian tradition has always celebrated, that she is the one who houses the one who doesn't ask for a house. She is the one who contains the uncontainable. She becomes a space for the one who's omnipresent. The creator of all becomes the fetus in the womb of Mary, who didn't ask for it. She didn't ask for it. She just accepts. And she doesn't accept naively. One of the things I love about Mary's story is her readiness to question what God says. Now Luke tells us this in such a way that it's a striking difference. Before the word of the Lord comes to Mary, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah. And he's a priest going about his priestly business. The angel says, your wife is going to receive a son. And Zechariah says, how can this be? And you remember, the judgment is because of his doubt that he's speechless until his son is born. I've prayed for that gift to fall on other people at times, but that's a, that's, a, that's a footnote. But Mary asked the exact same question. The word of the Lord comes to her, you will bear a son, and she says, wait a minute, hold on. How is this going to happen? And this, this is the difference between doubt that's born of unbelief and doubt that's born of confidence in God. And just like we have to know the difference between the ideas that come into our heads and the words of God that come into our hearts, we have to know the difference between doubts that are born because of our nearness to God and doubts that are born because we've estranged ourselves from God. And Mary asks the right question, how can this be? And then she receives the word, the promise of Christmas, the the spirit of the Lord will overshadow you and God's son will be formed in your womb. And then I leave you with this idea. With all the contrasts between David and Mary, 
There is one thing in these two stories that they have in common. There's one thing they have in common, and it's the most important thing for us to hear, I think, this Christmas. When David receives God's no, he accepts it. And when Mary receives God's yes, she accepts it. And this is what's critical for all of us, wherever we are and whatever our circumstances happen to be. Whatever we hear from God, a no or a yes, what's crucial is that we lean into it and understand that the no is a yes hidden for now. And the yes will lead to the fullness of a promise we can't imagine yet. I mean, think about what the angel says to Mary. The Spirit of God will overshadow you, and a child will be formed in your womb, and that child shall receive the throne of his father David, and he shall be a holy child. All of that is true, but the truth is infinitely deeper than she could have known at the time. Not just that this is a child from God, this child is God. Not just the throne of his father David, but the throne of God in the earth, the fulfillment of everything God has promised to anyone everywhere will be fulfilled through you. So whether in this season of your life you're like David and you're living from your head and not from your heart, you're living from those ideas that have been born from your experience in the world rather than from the heart of the Father and you're hearing God's no, or like Mary, you're just going about your life not trying to be heroic, you're just being who you are and God's word is birthed in your heart. Either way, whether it's a no or a yes, lean into it. Because that no is a yes. It'll turn on you as soon as you accept it. And that yes is fuller and richer than you can imagine. Infinitely richer than you can imagine. And think about this. The way that David's no becomes a yes is through someone else's life. Someone who's as far removed from him as as we can imagine. And that's true for all of the promises of God to you and to me. This Christmas and all around the year, the promises God has made to you are going to come to you through people you could never imagine. You could never think to ask. This is just God's way. Because he, he, our lives are bound together in him in ways we can't fathom, we can't track. And so, once we start to think about that, we can ask again, what does God want What does God want? And I think David's story reminds us that what God wants is not something for himself, but for us. In just a moment, when this sermon that hopefully is a comfort to my pastor, who my friend who thought he had preached the worst sermon ever, this we're gonna we're gonna stop this, we're going to move to the table. And at the table, we're going to offer to God our gifts of bread and wine. But here's what always happens with God. When you try to offer him a gift, it turns back to you as a gift from him to you. Because God has no need. And the only thing God ever wants for Christmas or any time is for you to open yourself up to his life so that through him you can become everything he has purposed you to be for the good of everyone around you. God has no need. The only thing God desires is for you to be yourself in full for the good of everyone around you. This is why the fruit of the Spirit is love 
and joy and peace, all of that is about your life being brought up into fullness. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Where God is most fully present, you and I are most fully ourselves for the good of the most around us. So today, as we end this sermon and we move to the table, and we ask ourselves, what does God want for Christmas? He wants us to open up our lives to his fullness so that that fullness can become ours for the sake of the whole world. Nothing less than that. And whether we've been like David or we are like Mary, all we have to do this Christmas and any time is accept God's word, yield to it in ways that bring us into alignment with what God is trying to do in the world for the sake of us and the sake of those around us, including those we never think about. Let's take a moment to let that word settle, and then Father Paul will come.